Chapter 11, A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Sebastián Vizcaíno. Even before Rodriguez Cermeño had reached the end of his fateful voyage, there had appeared at Mexico City a rival for the glory and profit of making discoveries in the Californias, a man well acquainted with the galleon route, and indeed a shipmate of Rodriguez on the Santa Ana. This was a certain Sebastián Vizcaíno, who, from being a moderately successful merchant, desired to convert himself into a conqueror and a general or commander of a fleet, the same Vizcaíno who in later years headed the embassy to Japan which has already been discussed. By his own account, he lost a great deal of treasure and commodities when Cavendish took the Santa Ana, but he made the round trip to Manila again, reaching New Spain in 1590 with a profit of 2,500 ducats on an investment of 200. Footnote. In a letter to his father, dated June 20, 1590, translated and published in The Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation, edited by Richard Hacklute, Everyman Edition, Volume 7, London and New York, 1907. In company with several others, Vizcaino worked out a plan which he hoped might prove an even richer windfall than that of the trade on the galleon. He and his associates approached the viceroy for a license to engage in pearl fishing in the Californias, in return for which they agreed to furnish the government with information about that country. In 1594, the viceroy, Luis de Velasco, made a contract with them, but execution was delayed as a result of a quarrel between members of the company. The matter was brought before the courts, which ordered Vizcaino and his companions to begin the voyage within three months' time. Matters were at this point when the Conde de Monterrey reached Mexico. Believing that a policy of leniency would best serve the royal interests, he amended the degree of the court and granted the company a concession to enter the Californias and reduce them, by peaceful means, to subjection to the crown. For this, the conquerors were to have the usual vast privileges and exemptions granted to the pacifiers and settlers of new provinces. Accordingly, Vizcaino, who had succeeded to the headship in the enterprise, had begun to raise recruits for the expedition when it was brought to the Conde de Monterey's attention that the original contract, under which Vizcaino was acting, had reference only to the pearl fishery, and not at all to the entry and pacification of the land. This gave Monterey an opportunity to consider whether it was desirable to grant the concession he had promised. On this point, he wrote to the king on February 29, 1596, as follows, quote, I found that a reconsideration was necessary, for it seemed to me, with regard to the person, Vizcaino, his quality and capital are not sufficient in connection with an enterprise which may come to be of such vast importance, and one requiring greater backing and a method of proceeding other than what is now thought and deemed sufficient. For, even looking at the matter from the utilitarian point of view, although he make the journey at his own cost and without any expense to your majesty, it seems to be of little moment whether he goes for gain and in order not to lose the chance of good fortune, but of great importance 
the hazarding of not only the repute which would be lost among these nations of indians if the natives of that country should repel this man and his people but this is the principal thing involved that of the conscience and authority of the royal person of your majesty it appeared to me to be risking much if an expedition which cannot lawfully be one of direct conquest but one of preaching the gospel and pacification and of bringing the people into subjection to the crown were entrusted to a man as leader-in-chief whose position is obscure and who has not even in less degree the resolution and capacity necessary for so great an enterprise despite his somewhat unfavorable opinion of vizcaino the viceroy decided however after taking counsel with the highest authorities in mexico that it would be contrary to justice not to let the expedition take place as he put it in the letter above referred to quote, and because i have deemed it meet for the service of our lord and that of your majesty inasmuch as it was necessary to go on with the affair since it had been begun and as this man vizcaino does not possess notorious defects which can rightfully excuse your majesty from aiding and fomenting his undertaking in order that the persons he has enlisted and intends to put on board ship and who in number and condition make a reasonably good showing may esteem and respect him i have done all that lay in my power to show him honor while here and to clothe him with authority in view of the greater danger i foresee and fear on his account though i would not say it to him which is some lack of respect and an overbold bearing on the part of the soldiers whom he takes with him so that in this way they may come to disobey his orders all this giving rise to great disorder unquote. vizcaino at least displayed energy and in march fifteen ninety six his expedition got under way for the californias three ships with a large number of men made up his force as an indication of his intention to make a settlement it is to be noted that he carried four franciscans to convert the natives and reduce them to missions some of the soldiers wives and a number of horses in his voyage up the coast from acapulco he lost fifty men by desertion and one of the friars because of illness left the expedition crossing to the lower end of baja california he came at length apparently about the middle of august to the site which jimenez and cortez had visited before him and because the indians received him so peacefully he gave it the name which ever since it has retained la paz or peace the winter storms of the gulf of california which had already begun were such that he could proceed no farther with his flagship so it was decided to establish a colony there while vizcaino himself should push on in the two smaller vessels to explore the northern shores of the gulf accordingly vizcaino started north on october third he encountered terrific storms but weathered them and at length came to a place where the indians invited the spaniards to come ashore so vizcaino landed forty-five men all went well until a spanish soldier quote, inconsiderately struck one of the indians in the breast with the butt of his arquebus in consequence there was a fight in which some of the indians were killed as a boatload of spaniards were returning to their ship the indian shot arrows at them from the shore 
one man was hit in the nose and this resulted in a commotion which led to the upsetting of the boat dressed as they were in heavy leathern armor nineteen were drowned and only five escaped by swimming in course of time this event became magnified in the telling until it reached the proportions of a very pretty legend the story was told that a certain don lope a page of the viceroy besought the hand of doña elvira the latter at length promised to marry him provided he could replace a certain magnificent pearl she had lost consequently don lope joined vizcaino's expedition going on the voyage up the gulf he was one of the men who landed at the place where the battle with the indians was fought and was indeed the one who caused it he saw the identical pearl which would suit doña elvira and he seized it from the very lips of a chieftain's daughter this not only brought on the battle but also the enforced abandonment of the province but don lope was well content for he had won his bride and then she confessed that she had not lost any pearl at all vizcaino put back to la paz where he found that the colony was not maintaining itself too successfully according to franciscan writings the indians liked the friars but objected to the soldiers who paid scant attention to native customs and too much to native women furthermore all were discouraged by the storms which prevented their fishing for pearls numerous indications of which had been found and the food supply was running short as the country was unsuited to provide for their wants vizcaino gave orders for the return to new spain on october twenty eighth the colony was abandoned after an existence of about two months and two of the ships sailed for new spain vizcaino in the third ship with forty of his best men made another effort however to explore the northern shores of the gulf again he encountered heavy storms and this time they were so severe that the rudder irons broke therefore he and his men made the best of their way back to new spain god in pity conducting us as he himself put it arrived in mexico he was eager to make a fresh expedition they had failed he said merely because the voyage had been made at the wrong season at a different time of the year they might have avoided the storms but this they could not have known before he was full of praise for the californias though his own experience of them gave little warrant for his encomiums there were innumerable indians eager to receive the gospel the land was twice as large as new spain and in a better situation as concerned distance from the equator pearls were abundant and of excellent quality the waters were richer in fish than any other known sea there were great resources in salt deposits and twenty days to the northwest there were quote, towns of people wearing clothes and who have golden ornaments in the ears and nose and they have silver many cloaks of cotton maize and provisions and fowls of the country and of castile end quote in case he should be allowed to make another expedition he wished that the lands with the indians upon them be granted to him and to his men footnote that is an encomienda as it was called a familiar institution of spanish colonial machinery in footnote and that they all be made nobles in one of the lower grades of nobility caballeros hijos dalgo 
besides receiving grant of other assistance and favors. The Council of the Indies had already ordered in May 1596 that somebody other than Vizcaino be chosen to effect the conquest, intending this measure to apply to the expedition on which, in fact, he had already departed. But the Conde de Monterey was now more favorably disposed toward Vizcaino. He wrote of him that, quote, in addition to possessing a practical knowledge of the South Sea, Pacific Ocean, and being a man of even disposition, upright and of good intentions, he is of medium yet sufficient ability, although I had feared it was otherwise, for governing his people. And this is coupled with energy enough to make himself respected by them. As for the voyage, quote, the unfortunate ending was not due to incapacity on the part of Vizcaino, who, on the contrary, gave evidence of some ability and greater spirit than could have been expected from a mere trader engaged in an enterprise of this kind. The viceroy was not deceived by Vizcaino's glowing descriptions, but was inclined to believe, as indeed the circumstances warranted, that the pearl fisheries might prove rich. He therefore recommended that Vizcaino be assisted, out of royal funds, to make another expedition, but, quote, for the purpose merely of ascertaining definitely what there is there, in order that complete assurance be had concerning the value of the pearl fishery, and that greater light may be thrown on what relates to the defense and security of these realms and the ships which make the China voyage, end quote. Alluding to the voyage of Rodriguez Cermeno and the wreck of the San Agustin, he said that people were now convinced that the proper way to explore the northern coasts of the Californias was not by a voyage from Manila in the heavily laden galleons, but by going direct from New Spain in boats of light drop. This exploration, he thought, should be conducted on one and the same enterprise with discoveries in the Gulf of California. The Council of the Indies, under the date of September 27, 1599, endorsed the Viceroy's plan in the main, requesting that action be taken with all possible speed. They put great emphasis on the character of the men to be enlisted for the expedition, wishing to take precautions against arousing the hostility of the Indians, but ordered the explorations in the Gulf and those along Alta California coast to be undertaken separately. Yet the expedition was held back until 1602. One of the prime causes for delay was a fresh entry of foreign ships into the Pacific, wherefore it became necessary to seek them out with all forces Spain could command. This time it was the Dutch who caused the trouble. In 1598, two Dutch fleets left Europe and sailed through the Strait of Magellan into the Pacific, respectively in 1599 and 1600. One of these fleets, originally under Jacob Mahu, and later under Simon de Cordes, did not in fact go very far north before making its way across the Pacific. But the other, under Oliver van Noort, made several captures off the west coast of South America, and reached the region of the equator before turning west. Notices of these voyages early reached New Spain, and rumors of foreign ships came in from all directions. Passengers on the San Jeronimo, the Manila galleon which reached Acapulco early in 1599, declared that they had seen four ships near Cerros Island, 
off the western coast of Baja California. But the Comte de Monterey reported, no doubt with correctness, that more likely they mistook the clouds for ships. With the actual captures made by Van Noort in 1600, Spanish fears were redoubled. One man, who had been a prisoner of Van Noort's ship, declared that the Dutch had accounts of the voyage of Cavendish in their possession, and that they planned, like him, to catch the Manila galleon off Cape San Lucas. A Spanish fleet was therefore sent north from Peru under Juan de Velasco to look for Van Noort, and in September 1600 it spent some days scouring the Baja California coast from La Paz to beyond Cape San Lucas. Finding no enemies, the Spaniards began to doubt their existence in those seas. As one of the captains, Hernando de Lugonas, said, quote, There is news of the enemy everywhere, but they are like phantoms which appear many places, whereas we find them in none, unquote. The immediate danger having in fact disappeared, preparations for the Vizcaino expedition could now be resumed. On March 18, 1602, formal instructions for the voyage were issued. These were set forth in great detail, but amounted substantially to what had been decided upon in 1597 and 1599 by the Viceroy and the Council of Indies. Vizcaino was ordered to make a thorough exploration of the coast from Cape San Lucas to Cape Mendocino, employing two ships of moderate size and a launch which could get near the coast for close-up observations. On no account was he to go inside the gulf, unless perhaps in passing on the return journey. Indeed, in an earlier communication, dated March 2, 1602, the viceroy informed him that he would incur the penalty of death if he disobeyed this particular. If weather permitted, he might continue his exploration beyond Cape Mendocino to Cape Blanco, but if the coast had a westward trend from Cape Mendocino, he was to go a hundred leagues only and not more. Footnote. It is interesting to note that the Spaniards already had some idea of the coast as far north as Cape Blanco, doubtless through voyages of the Manila Galleon. In footnote. Emphasizing the fact that this was a voyage for exploration of the coast only, the viceroy said that Vizcaino was not to stop for a thorough examination of any great bay he might find, beyond observing the entrance thereto and discovering shelter for shipping. In view of the interest in the Strait of Anian, this indeed manifested a desire to discover only so much as might surely be possible, rather than the pursuit of wild schemes. Furthermore, he was to make no settlements and was to take great pains to avoid conflicts with the Indians. No expense had been spared in providing for this expedition. The crews, about 200 men in all, were carefully selected, most of them being enlisted in Mexico City as both sailors and soldiers. There were three ships of better than usual quality. The San Diego, the flagship, on which Vizcaino sailed as general of the expedition. The Santo Tomas, under the Admiral Toribio Gómez de Cordovan, a sailor of long experience in European service, and the launch or frigate, Tres Reyes, under Sebastián Melendez, succeeded later by Martín de Aguilar. In addition, there was a longboat, but that was left behind at the lower end of Baja California, though picked up again on the return journey. 
an expert map-maker was taken along in the person of Jerónimo Martínez de Palacios, who in fact performed his tasks most meritoriously. Footnote. The name Martínez appears in some documents as Martín. A series of maps, presumably by Martínez, and beautifully done in colors, are to be found at the Archivo General de Indias, Lagajo 6437. Exact reproductions now exist in the Bancroft Library. In footnote. Several other officers and special counselors of the general went along, besides three Carmelite friars. One of the last named was a certain Father Antonio de la Ascension, a former pilot, and also something of a cosmographer. His account of the voyage was, for many years, the best known of the original sources, though his diary is not now extant. Incidentally, the general was accompanied by his son. Provisions for eleven months were carried. On May 5, 1602, the expedition left Acapulco. Making his way up the coast, Vizcaino crossed over to Cape San Lucas, requiring several days for the voyage on account of the winds encountered. The voyage from the Bay of San Bernabé, near the Cape, in which he had cast anchor on June 11th, to San Diego, may be passed quickly in review. It proved to be one of extreme difficulty, for headwinds were met with all the way. For example, the general was three times blown back to the port of San Bernabé before he could round the peninsula to northwestward and one ship was obliged to return a fourth time. Some days not a league was made, and tacking back and forth was always necessary. Frequently the ships were separated, but managed to find one another again. One of the worst difficulties was in keeping up the water supply off the sterile west coast of the peninsula. It was not very fresh, and it was green, said Vizcaino of one standing pool of water but the bottles we carried were filled with it. Always, however, a supply would be found, though absolute want often threatened. Nevertheless, careful explorations of the coast were made, and names were applied without much regard to those given by earlier voyagers. After a voyage of over four months from San Bernabé, from which he had succeeded in departing on July 5th, Vizcaino passed the line of what was later to become Alta California. Quote, Sunday, the tenth of the month, he said, we arrived at a port which must be the best to be found in all the South Sea, Pacific Ocean, protected on all sides and having good anchorage. End quote. Two days later, on November 12th, the day of St. James, or San Diego, a mass was celebrated, and the name San Diego, which it still bears, was given to the port thus doing honor not only to the saint, but also to the general's flagship. Here, a stay of ten days was made to repair the ships and give crews a chance to recover from sickness. Leaving San Diego on November 20th, Vizcaino sighted Catalina Island on the 24th, the day of St. Catherine, or Santa Catalina, wherefore he gave it the name it has since retained, though he did not come to anchor there until the 27th. While there, an incident occurred that is worth mentioning. After relating a visit Vizcaino made to the interior of the island, where he saw an Indian idol and, quote, placed the name of Jesus on the head of the demon, telling the Indians that it was good, and from heaven, 
but that the idol was the devil. The diary of the voyage goes on to say, quote, The general returned to the Pueblo, and an Indian woman brought him two pieces of figured china silk in fragments, telling him that they had got them from people like ourselves who had negroes, that they had come on the ship which was driven by a strong wind to the coast and wrecked, and that it was farther on. The general endeavored to take two or three Indians with him that they might tell him where the ship had been lost, promising to give them clothes. The Indians consented and went with him to the captain's ship, but as we were weighing anchor preparatory to leaving, the Indians said they wished to go ahead in their canoe and that they did not wish to go aboard the ship, fearing that we would abduct them. And the general, in order not to excite them, said, Very well. Apparently, Vizcaino thought that some nearby wreck of an unknown ship was referred to, but the reader of the Rodriguez Cermenho account will at once recognize the reference was to this visit there seven years before and that the San Augustine, far to the north in Drake's Bay, was the wrecked ship indicated. Going up the Santa Barbara Channel, so named by them, Vizcaino and his men were harangued by an intelligent old chief who, quote, made himself so well understood by signs that he lacked nothing but ability to speak our language, He had come out in a boat to persuade them to stop at this village, and, quote, such were the efforts of this Indian to get us to go to it, that as a greater inducement, he said he would give to each one of us ten women, unquote. But as the wind was then behind them for the first time since leaving Acapulco, and as winter was coming on, the Spaniards decided to continue on their course. Rounding Point Conception, which they so named, they sighted Santa Lucia Mountain, to which they also gave the name it still retains. Coming to a large bay, Vizcaino sent the lodge ahead to explore it for a port, for this country was the most important of the exploration for the purposes of His Majesty, because it was at this point that the Manila galleon would be most desirous of finding suitable anchorage. This was on December 15th. The report to the commander of the launch was favorable, and on the next day the fleet entered the bay to procure water and restore the sick, of whom there were many. They were now in Monterey Bay, which they so named in honor of the Viceroy. Nearby, too, they discovered the Carmelo River and named it. The so-called discovery of the Bay of Monterey, so-called because Rodriguez Cermenho had seen this bay almost seven years to the day before Vizcaino did, was the capital event of the expedition. According to Vizcaino, quote, We found ourselves to be in the best port that could be desired, for besides being sheltered from all the winds, it has many pines for masts and yards, and live oaks and white oaks, and water in great quantity, all near the shore. In his letters, too, he praised the port, quote, In addition to being so well situated in point of latitude for that which His Majesty intends to do for the protection and security of ships coming from the Philippines, the harbor is very secure against all winds. The land is thickly peopled by Indians and is very fertile in its climate and the quality of soil resembling Castile. End quote. Footnote. Vizcaino to the King, Monterey, December 28, 1602. In footnote. And again, quote, It is all that can be desired for the commodiousness 
and as a station for ships making a voyage to the Philippines, sailing whence they make a landfall on this coast. The port is sheltered from all winds, and if, after putting to sea, a storm be encountered, they, the Philippine ships, need not, as formerly, run for Japan, where so many have been cast away and so much property lost. In these statements, Vizcaína was borne out by Ascension, who called it a fine port, and went on to say, quote, This is where the ships coming from the Philippines to New Spain come to reconnoiter. It is a good harbor, well sheltered, and supplied with water, wood, and good timber. End quote. The curious feature about these reports, and much more might be added to them, including references to the vast wealth in gold and silver that the Indians said was to be found in the interior, is that nearly all they had to say was true, save for the yard about the excellence of Monterey as a sheltered port. But it was precisely this departure from strict accuracy that had the most effect. The legend of the port of Monterey became one of the moving factors for a century and a half in Spanish expansion to the northwest. At Monterey, the crews were landed, and a council was held to determine what the expedition should do. Owing to the unexpectedly long time required for the voyage thus far, more than seven months, the supplies were becoming exhausted. Some forty-five or more of the men were sick with the scurvy, and several had died, sixteen according to one account. It was decided that Admiral Gomez and the Santo Tomas should return at once to New Spain, taking with him those who were sickest, and also the reports of the voyage. On December twenty-ninth, therefore, Gomez started back and eventually made port with a loss of 25 of the 34 men he had on board. The other two ships left for the north on January 3, 1603. On the 5th, they parted company in a storm and did not again see each other during the rest of the voyage. That same day, Vizcaino came to anchor outside the harbor at Drake's Bay, but was driven away the next morning by an offshore wind. Several of Vizcaino's men had been at Drake's Bay before, on the San Agustin, notably Francisco de Bolognas, the chief pilot of the San Diego, who recognized the bay as the place where Rodriguez had stopped. On the 12th, Vizcaino at last reached Cape Mendocino, whence, in accord with his instructions, he was at liberty to turn back. But the storms drove him somewhat farther to the north, until January 21st, when he was able to start the return journey. Meanwhile, the intense cold and sickness of the men, of whom at one time, quote, there were only two sailors who could climb to the main topsail, unquote, had combined with the storms to produce great hardship. Quote, the pitching was so violent that it threw both sick and well from their beds and the general from his. He struck upon some boxes and broke his ribs with a heavy blow, unquote. The return voyage, however, was comparatively simple from the standpoint of the winds, for now they helped the ship along its course, whereas before they had been a constant hindrance. But the men were so sick with the scurvy, and the provisions literally so rotten, that it was a race with death. Yet some explorations of the coast were made to supplement what they had done on the northward voyage, but they did not dare to stop, lest they should be unable to get the anchor up again giving up the originally projected exploration of the Gulf of California, the general decided, quote, 
as the sick were dying of hunger because they could not eat what was on board the ship on account of their sore mouths, unquote, to run to the nearest point on the mainland. Coming to Mazatlan on February 18th, Vizcaino and the five men, who alone on the ship were able to walk, went ashore to look for help. Quote, Without knowing the way, he traveled 13 leagues inland through the mountains and rugged places for the Pueblo of Mazatlan, unquote, but lost his way. Fortunately, he chanced upon a pack train, and it was thus enabled to get help to his comrades. With rest and proper food, the men soon got well and took up the voyage to Acapulco, which they reached on March 21st. Meanwhile, the Tres Reyes had been driven north to Cape Blanco. By that time, Martin de Aguilar, the commander, and Antonio Flores, the pilot, had died, whereupon the boatswain, Esteban Lopez, turned the boat around and sailed for New Spain, reaching Navidad on February 26, 1603. Two men, besides the two officers, had died. The narrative of this voyage, as told by presumably ignorant boatswain, gave rise to one of the most fruitful of the Strait of Anion stories. Six leagues above Point Reyes, he said, they came upon a very, very great river from the southeast, evidently Tomales Bay. Farther north, quote, in 41 degrees, near Cape Mendocino, they found a very great bay into which there entered a mighty river from the northern shore. It runs with such strong current that although they were a day struggling against it with the wind behind them, they could not enter it more than two leagues, End quote. Through what seems to have been a mistake of the Franciscan historian Torquemada, this was stated as in 43 degrees, the limit of the voyage, but the boatswain said it was near Cape Mendocino, and at another place in his count intimated that it was below it. This agreed with the charts of the voyage, which entered Aguilar's River in 41 degrees and Cape Mendocino in 41 degrees 30 minutes. In course of time, this river became an almost transcontinental stream, or at least a great western sea, in the imagination of the mapmakers. There seems to be nothing in the place indicated to correspond even remotely to the description. It is a temptation, however, to believe that the boatswain, relying upon memory, was confused and that Humboldt Bay, which is near Cape Mendocino, though north of it, was the famous great bay discovered by Aguilar. In all events, both the San Diego and the Tres Reyes missed the real Great Bay with the powerful river, for they did not get sight of the Bay of San Francisco, either coming or going. The voyage of Vizcaino had been a distinct success. Despite the great difficulties he had encountered, including the loss of from 42 to 48 men, according to different estimates made, he had carried out to the full and thoroughly the orders of the Viceroy, though it had not been possible, owing to the storms and the sickness of the men, to explore the coasts above Monterey so carefully as he had up to that point. Fortunately for his fame as a discoverer, two things occurred. The reports of his voyage became widely known and soon were embodied in printed works, and, since the voyage was not followed up, the legend of Monterey, to say nothing of Aguilar's river, was allowed to stand. The Conde de Monterey now had nothing but words of praise for the erstwhile mere trader, and appointed him to the lucrative post of commander of the next galleon bound for Manila. 
Suitable rewards were also given to others who had taken part in the expedition. It now becomes pertinent to inquire why the plan for the occupation of Monterey, or at least its utilization as a port of refuge for the galleon, was given up. In 1603, shortly after Vizcaino's return, the Conde de Monterey was succeeded as viceroy by the Marques de Montesclaros, who not only threw cold water on the plans of his predecessor, but also acted in a manner displaying either spite or else a desire for graft. In a letter to the king, dated October 28, 1605, he objected to the former viceroys having appointed Vizcaino as the commander of the galleon sailing from Acapulco in 1604, six months after Montesclaros himself should be in office. He had countermanded the order and made Vizcaino alcalde mayor, chief justice and mayor of Tehuantepec, which he stated was fully as much as he deserved. Later, he claimed that Vizcaino had tried to bribe him to make him commander of the galleon, wherefore he dismissed him from the service. The fate of Martinez, the expert cartographer, was even worse. The Conde de Monterey had given him a rich appointment on the galleon. Not only did Montesclaros deprive him of this, but also caused charges to be brought against him for forgery, and Martinez was condemned and hanged. These measures produced a distinctly unfavorable impression at court, and there were several royal decrees of 1606 whose combined purport was the following. Vizcaino was to be made general of the galleon leaving from Acapulco in 1607, and was to make a thorough survey of Monterey on the return voyage, with a view to founding a settlement there. Upon his arrival in New Spain, he was to be given a number of colonists of the best type to take to Monterey. These men were to be offered such inducements as might seem to be necessary, presumably lands with the Indians in bondage, and a considerable sum of money out of the royal treasury was to be provided for the enterprise. Montesclaros now found a new way to evade the issue. The galleon of 1607 had sailed before the king's orders came, he wrote in May 23, 1607, and Vizcaino himself had gone to Spain. It was true that there ought to be a port of refuge for the galleon, but it should be nearer Japan, for it was from the Philippines to just beyond Japan that the worst storms were encountered. When the galleon reached the Californias, the voyage was nearly over, for it required only 25 to 30 days to run down the coast to Acapulco, with a favoring wind, too, to help the ship on its way. The best thing to do would be to find the two islands called Rica de Oro and Rica de Plata in 34 to 35 degrees, somewhere far to the west of Monterey. This revived an old story of uncertain origin. At some time in 1584 to 1585, when Pedro de Moya was viceroy, a letter was addressed to him by a certain Father Andres de Aguirre. Aguirre said that he was with Urdaneta in 1565 when that sailor friar established the Manila galleon service and that Urdaneta showed him a copy of a document about certain rich islands in the Pacific. Strange as was the account of Father Aguirre, it is worth inserting, for it was this tale, used by Montesclaros, that changed the course of California history. As Aguirre remembered it, the gist of the story was as follows. Quote, 
A Portuguese ship sailed from Malacca for the islands of Japan and at the city of Canton took aboard Chinese goods. Arriving within sight of Japan, she encountered a storm coming from the west, so severe that it was impossible to fetch those islands and she ran before it under very little sail for eight days, the weather being very thick and no land having been seen. On the ninth day the storm was spent and the weather cleared, and they made two large islands. They reached one of these at a good port, well peopled, there being a great city surrounded by a good stone wall. There were many large and medium-sized vessels in port. Immediately on their entering the harbor, there flocked to the ship a great number of persons, well-dressed and cared for, and manifesting much affection for the people of the ship. The lord of that island and city, learning that they were merchants, sent to the captain of the ship to say that he and those of his people he might select should come ashore without any fear that they would do them harm. On the contrary, he assured them, they should be received well, and he requested that they should bring with them the manifest of the goods the ship brought, for they would take them and trade for them to their content. The captain communicated this to his people, and it was resolved that the notary of the ship should be sent ashore with the manifest and two merchants, one a Portuguese and the other an Armenian, residents of Malacca. The lord of the land received them in his house, which was large and well built, and treated them with affection, making them presents, they understanding one another by signs. The land was very rich in silver and other things, silk and clothing. The notary and the Portuguese merchant returned to the ship in order to land merchandise and store it in a building which was assigned to them for that purpose, while the Armenian remained with the lord of the land and was treated very hospitably. The merchandise having been taken ashore, and a vast number of persons coming to purchase it, bringing a great quantity of silver, it came to pass that in some thirty days they sold all the goods, making great gains, so that all became very rich, and they loaded the ship with silver. During the time that they were on the island, they learned that the Lord was suzerain of another island also, which was within sight four leagues away, and of others which were near to these, all being rich in silver and very populous. The people is white and well-formed, well cared for, and clothed in silk and fine clothing of cotton an affectionate and very affable people. The language differs from that of Chinese as well as that of the Japanese and is readily learned, for in less than forty days that the Portuguese passed on the island, they were able to converse with the natives. These islands abound in the means of maintaining life well. Rice, which is the bread they use, fowls like ours in great number, tame ducks and many hogs, goats, buffaloes and deer and wild boars in great abundance, various birds and game and fishes, many and good, and a great plenty of many kinds of fruit. The climate of the land is very good and healthy. These islands are in from 35 to 40 degrees. The difference in longitude between them and Japan cannot be arrived at because they had run before the gale and the weather was very thick and obscure. They ran from Japan to the eastward, and, having disposed of their merchandise, they returned to Malacca. They named these islands out of regard for the Armenian merchant, who was greatly respected by the people of the ship, Isles of the Armenian. These were the islands which, as Rica de Oro and Rica de Plata, 
Montesclaros now proposed to find. Shortly afterward, August 4, 1607, he brought his guns to bear on the project for a settlement at Monterey. This time he used a plea which rarely failed, whatever the angle from which it was introduced, that of foreign danger. The greatest strength of the royal dominions in the Pacific, he said, was that the difficulty the king's enemies had in getting there or in remaining after they arrived. It was on that account that they had been so desirous of finding a strait above Cape Mendocino. To settle Monterey, therefore, would endanger the Spanish Empire, for it might serve as a port where enemies as well as Spaniards could refit and procure supplies. And he had already pointed out that Monterey was not necessary for the galleon. Well, in addition, it was too far away from New Spain to be armed against impending dangers. The ideas of Montesclaros bore fruit. The Council of the Indies gave up the plan for a colony at Monterey and diverted the funds to a wild goose chase for the two mysterious islands. The story of Vizcaino's voyage of 1611 to 1613 to Japan and of his fruitless search for the two islands has already been told. Meanwhile, Alta California was saved for over a hundred and fifty years in the blissful obscurity it needed if the English colonists who were just making their first successful settlements along the Atlantic coast were ever to have their opportunity to acquire the golden area on the Pacific. Out of it all, Vizcaino retained his fame as the discoverer of the wonderful port of Monterey, though neither was he the discoverer, nor was the port wonderful. But he lost his chance to become the California Portola, as Ascension, perhaps, its Sarah. Yet, despite his over-enthusiastic exaggeration, he had played the part of a thorough-going man. Footnote. Such a vast body of materials on Vizcaino has been uncovered in recent years that the career of this important figure in California history ought to be made the subject of a doctoral thesis. Several transcripts in the Bancroft Library from the documents in the Archivo General de Indias of Seville, Spain, have been used in the preparation of this chapter though the following items were more particularly relied upon. 1. Documents from the Sutro Collection, originally in Spanish and translated and edited by George Butler Griffin, in Historical Society of Southern California, Publications, Volume 2, Part 1, Los Angeles, 1891. Fifteen of the nineteen documents range in date from 1584 to 1603. Five of them were made use of in the preceding chapter, and the other ten here. 2. Documentos referentes al recosamiento de las costas de las Californias desde el Cabo de San Lucas al de Mendocino, edited by Francisco Carrasco y Guisosola, Madrid, 1882. This contains 44 documents, ranging in date from 1584 to 1609. Many of the more important appear in item one above. Some of the others were also used. 3. Spanish Exploration in the Southwest, 1542-1706, translated and edited by Herbert Eugene Bolton, New York, 1916, in Original Narratives of Early American History series. This contains a translation into English of a diary attributed to Vizcaino of the 1602-1603 voyage, 
and of the relation written in 1620 by Father Asuncion, a member of the same expedition. 4. Torquemada Juan de Primera, Segunda, Tercera parte de los veinte y un libros rituales de monarquía indiana. Volume 1, Madrid, 1793. This account is the one that has, heretofore, been almost the only source for material about Vizcaino. It has some facts not appearing elsewhere. End of footnote. End of chapter 11.